Welcome to Highly Unlikely. I'm Jonathan Flannis. In today's episode, we talk with David Ditchfield. He's one of very few to have had what's called a near-death experience. So take a listen to David's story. It's one unlike any other. Enjoy. The moment my life changed was December 14th, 1991, in a car accident in Charleston, South Carolina. I was hit at 75 miles per hour. I was literally knocked out of my body, and it was life-changing in many ways because it was at that moment that I realized that I had the choice whether to stay in my body or to exit. I knew that I was eternal. I knew I'd been here before, and I knew I would continue on. Darkness. I mean, darker than you can ever imagine. If I'm dead, I shouldn't be aware of this total darkness. It was getting lighter and lighter. Then the next thing I knew, I was on the edge of what I thought was a cliff. We were stuck, and I was cold, though, and I'd never been that cold, and I had frostbite on my fingertips and my nose and my toes and my cheeks and my chin, and, and I had hypothermia. But I also noticed right away that I had no body, no arms, no legs. I was like, it was like my third eye was it. I then started to see this light that was incredibly bright. It didn't hurt my eyes. And all the physical pain and everything that was going on back in the room sort of disappeared. And the closest I can call it, 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 it felt like I was so supported and so loved. And as I was moving towards this light, I saw a triangle of people. And at the front of the triangle was my granddad, Sam. Oh my God, granddad, you look so well. I was so happy to see him. He looked younger, he looked well. Obviously he's dead. <laughs> but then I just remember going down and I really did think I was going to die at that point. Darkness. A sea of nothingness surrounds you in every direction. Empty space extending in infinite directions endlessly. Is this what happens when you die? That's been the assumption I've held for most of my life. Nothing good or bad, depressing or happy, just nothing. But what happens when you take your last breath? Most of us won't know until we get there. But what happens when you die and come back? Our guest today knows what that's like. He's one of very few to have had what's called a near-death experience. In all fairness, life for me was a massive struggle. I just felt like I just didn't fit in. This is David Ditchfield. I first came across David's story in the British newspaper, The Atlantic. In it, he described what it's like to die and come back. This is known as a near-death experience. I imagine you've heard about them. But from those I've read about, David's is undoubtedly the most fascinating. In today's episode, we hear David's story from a terrifying accident that left him near death, only to come back again. The pathway that led me to the actual NDE itself. The phrase NDE is short for near-death experience. Was that um, my life needed to change. First of all, that I wasn't loving myself. I got no sense of self-worth or self-love. At the time of the near-death experience, 
David had moved to London to start a new life. Like a lot of people who move to the capital cities, you know, like New York or London or Paris or Rome, you go there with, with high ambitions and you want to do something big, you know, and I just thought, well, I'm not cutting it within any form or fashion. Because I'd left school without all those qualifications, I felt like uh, I was a failure. The only work I could pick up was, was manual work that I was no good at. The only thing is, is I really wasn't that great at that kind of work. You know, I was looking at the other guys around me thinking, wow, you know, they're just really on the job and they're, they're brilliant at this. And I, I wasn't, life was not enjoyable. I, I learned to play guitar very basically. So I was joining sort of various bands and I was hoping to cut, cut my teeth, you know, as it were, in that industry. But I never did. It was very hard to a very competitive industry. And I was just chasing after those kind of goals, chasing after all the kind of relationships that uh, were out of my reach. <laughs> so life was, very, was not really working out for me, I guess. So, David, you know, this isn't working. You're chasing all the wrong goals. They're all sort of um, out of your reach. They're just not for you. You know, that whole episode really was like a big life lesson. David was feeling ashamed of how his life had turned out. And I also carried an awful lot of guilt. I figured in front of, especially in front of my family, I always felt guilty because I felt that I was, you know, I was getting into trouble in my life because things weren't working out. And I was, when I say getting into trouble, nothing serious, but I, I just, I was, I was drinking heavily. I, 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 in all fairness, that, that was another thing because I think that was all, all came with, with the, the line of work. You picked up your work by going to the bar, you know. So you go to your, to, I'd go to my local bar in the, in the part of London I was living in, where everyone used to sort of like hustle work off, off the guys who were owning the sites, you know. So I'd go in there and, I, and I'd end up spending all the money that I'd earned that day. <laughs> Alcohol is another thing that it, you, you think that it's lifting you, but it's also, I, I realize now, it's a depressant, so, so it's a vicious circle. My brother, for example, he, he just kind of flew through school and, and went to university and did, did well. And I guess I felt that I, I, I couldn't live up to that. So I used to think, well, you know, they must think I'm a complete mess. You know, how come I turned out the way I did? At this low in David's life, one incredibly unlucky incident would change his life forever and bring him face to face with his own mortality. It began with a jacket. Well, it was actually um, a family heirloom. It, it belonged to my great aunt and, uh, and she just passed away. And so I, I said, oh, it was a very good, beautiful quality coat. And it was perfect for that day because it was a freezing cold uh, February day, you know. As he did every day, David walked down into London's underground. This time, David was joined by a friend named Anna, who he was sending off. David and Anna said their goodbyes. As the doors of the train closed, David noticed a pulling on his neck. It turns out his jacket was stuck in the train's door. As they usually do, David was expecting for the doors to open back up. However, he saw to his horror that the train was getting ready to leave. David tried to no avail to swiftly take his jacket off. He started to panic. David looked into the train to see if someone could fix the terrible problem taking place. In front of him was his friend Anna. The look of terror on her face was just, this this I can see it now, really horrifying, you know, for us both. Then the train just started to edge its way out. And then it pulled a, a tremendous amount of speed. You know, it's a, you don't realize how much speed these trains actually accelerate at until you, you're on the outside of it. The train continued to speed up. I lost my footing. I remember hearing the, the gears kind of slipping through the gears really fast and, and I ran with it at first and I was hoping that the, 
the sheer force of the train and my body weight would release it but it didn't I, I actually got put, dragged along along the platform and even then that it, you know it wasn't going to release my coat and then and I was literally sucked down between the, the, the edge of the platform and the train itself going down and I really did think I was going to die at that point and uh, I, I remember this it's almost like I heard the tremendous rip at that point and then I went down into this darkness and I just looked up and it's like the side of the carriage door seemed to sort of disappear into the sky then I was pulled into like this you know sheer hell and I was thrown around and tossed from pillar to post I was banged against the, the platform wall and the train itself and then I was just tossed around like a rag doll so David is thrown from the train to the wall, to the train to the wall, back and forth, back and forth. Um, it was like being thrown into into a you know, fast spin of a, of a washing machine. Very, very um, dramatic. <laughs> Fully conscious throughout the whole thing as well. I, I, I didn't black out at any point. And um, this seemed to go on for, for a long time. And uh, then I suddenly found that I was thrown down to the ground and I was lying between the track. As, as the train continued to speed on above my head and I could hear it just rattling away. And at that point I thought, it's still not over yet, even though it sort of, I was lying on the ground. So at this point, David is on the track and he's panicking, thinking, what do I do so this train doesn't run me over? I, I was in survival mode throughout the whole thing and I, and I remember thinking to myself, I got time to think, think it through and I thought, remember all the Indiana Jones classic movies and James Bond where this happens they they just lie down flat with their noses right in the gravel so that's exactly what I did and I just kept my head down because I thought any you know part of the undercarriage of the the, the the actual train could just come along and whack me over the head and that would be it it'd be over turns out Indy was right but um, of course it wasn't you know it wasn't to be that didn't happen and the train finally sort of moved on and, and then I just remember hearing it's kind of this the sound of it disappearing into the distance and I just thought wow I'm alive I'd had from this, the oily track and then looked up and uh, um, the first thing I noticed was this thick quality sheepskin coat was now ripped into threads and um my arm had, had been, uh, the top half of my arm had been cut off. Although he survived, David's arm had been severed from his body. There was a lot of blood and I was in a, I was in a bad way. But I was alive, so there was a, a mixture of complete horror, um, but complete sort of relief to survive. What had happened, it had been, um, it had been severed um, from the elbow down, and so it was just, just kind of just hanging on just by, by thread, if you like, so being cut right open as well. I could see all the workings inside my arm, you know, it was all the skin had been ripped right open as well. There was a part of, of, of it was horror was like going through my head, but there was another part was was kind of this odd fascination that I could see all the workings inside me, and, and I was kind of looking and wow. That's the inside of me, that's the inside of my arm, and, and that's how it all works. I could see all the tendons and everything, but um, so people kind of go, wow, that's, that's mad you were thinking about that, but you know, that's shock as well for you, you know, and it's just uh, after going through something so huge, um, there's a lot going through your head, you know. Often people go through this process that uh, if they're facing like my situation where they know they're probably going to die, that um, 
their mind goes in, into a survival technique that, that, that it, it's, it kind of slows down. Like, for example, the, the rail police did a massive inquiry on, on the whole accident and they told me that they'd uh, worked it all out, that it took seven and a half seconds from the moment the train pulled off for me going under. Now that felt more like seven and a half minutes. What happened was I literally had time to think it through in my head. I'd seen this news footage uh, about two or three weeks earlier where a small child had been thrown from a burning apartment block because the children don't tense up, you know, they're, they're very loose and relaxed. So I had time to even think that through. Within that seven and a half seconds, I thought, right, just relax, and that's your only chance at this stage. David did his best to relax. I was terrified, but at the same time, I was actually determined to survive this, and, and I was very relaxed. In fact, my friend Anna... The friend on the train. ...said to me when she came to visit me in hospital, and she said, and I saw you go under. She said, but when you went under, she said, please don't be upset by this, but you seem to go under with such grace. <laughs> so, so she said you rolled under like really gracefully. And the other thing is as well, this is quite interesting, that as terrifying as it was, actually facing death and, and thinking you're going to die is not as frightening as the anticipation. If somebody had said to me moments before, right, you know, you're, you're gonna, your coat's going to get trapped, you're going to go under this train, I probably would have been a heck of a lot more frightened than the actual moment of it happening. At this point, David is on the tracks and trying to figure out what to do next. The first thing I thought was, I better get my cell phone out of my pocket and uh, call my sister to let her know what's just happened. <laughs> I don't know why, because I just figured that she, would, she could alert the emergency services. When I, I pulled it, I managed to pull it out of my, my coat pocket and then it was uh, the phone was completely smashed and it wasn't working. But at this point, help arrives. And then at that point, the um, people came running to, up towards the, the edge of the platform, you know, and the emergency services were there, like, really, really quick. And these guys just kind of jumped down onto the track and uh, and started cutting into, into the rest of my clothing and, uh, you know, managed to get me onto a stretcher and lift me up at this huge drop, you know, <laughs> from the platform edge. Emergency services rushed David to an ambulance. I remember them. They got me into into the ambulance, and the the doctor who was there turned around. He said, "Look, there's a there's a hospital just around the corner, but I think the one that's going to save you is a, is, a, is 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 a further distance. Can you hang on?" I said, "Yeah, let's go." And I'm so glad we did because um, it was Adambrooks Hospital, which is kind of like one of the main sort of university hospitals. Yeah, the, yeah. There was. I was in agony. I was absolutely, you know, in absolute agony. And uh, but shock, yeah, was was also helping me, I guess. David arrives at the hospital and is greeted by a team of doctors. At this point, he's losing blood. Things really aren't looking good. We arrived at the hospital, and there was like this, this team just waiting there for me. You know, as as they got me into the emergency department. I was on this trolley, I could see it was like a big arc of people and stuff and they got me straight in there so there was a lot of frantic sort of voices, you know, all these, these doctors sort of shouting out all these different things, you know, medical terms and stuff. I remember just before they wheeled me into, into surgery, I, I begged him, I said, look, you know, I, I, 
can you save my left arm, please? I, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I try to, I play guitar, you know, that's all I was concerned about. And he said, I'll do my best. And uh, so he did. They, they, they saved it, you know. But I mean, after three major operations, you know, it, it's, it's still there. It's not functional. I can't play the guitar anymore. Um, but, you know, but I'm still glad I've got it. They managed to sort of save all, all you know, initially save all, all the tendons and uh, that, that needed to be saved. I mean, it took 18 months or so before I could actually use even my fingers, you know, because everything just kind of like nothing worked at all. Back in the hospital, David's survival isn't a sure thing. I was losing copious amounts of blood by then, and uh, so it was... Um, I was by then the pain was really kicking in and and the blood loss was getting higher. As David lies there in excruciating pain, something strange starts to happen. And I suddenly went from that into what I felt like a, a really peaceful sort of darkened room. David takes a look around and notices he's somewhere else. I could see all these beautiful orbs like colors of orbs that were like kind of pulsating all around me they were like oranges and and, um, and greens and this made me feel very calm i'd gone from all the, the overload of sand and and uh, light you know like this fluorescent light screaming into my eyes i'd gone into this beautiful dark place and, and then i remember all the pain had just gone from my body altogether if you went somewhere like a lovely dark chapel it was very peaceful and they just got candles uh, lit all around you. I guess that's the, the, the best way to give a similar example. But it wasn't candles that were lit. They, they were like these pulsating colors, you know, they were just amazing. They were just like these beautiful orbs, you know, like quite, quite large orbs. But and when I say pulsating, because it was very slow, flashing of colors. And they were just like all these kind of crystal colors you know all the different colors uh, of the rainbow if you like but they weren't bright lights they were just very calm and, and calm lights i looked to see where i was and i was lying on this big piece of slate it was like a sort of rock it was almost like a like a huge altar like a medieval altar if you like and uh, then at that stage I, I looked down at my body Looking down at your body from above tends to be universal for those that have had a near-death experience. And uh, and I realized that I was covered in like a, a, a blue cloth blanket or whatever, you know, and that comforted me. All my injuries were, were had gone, you know, my arm was intact, so there was no scars, there was no blood, there was nothing, everything was totally healed. And I thought, wow, where am I? And I just figured then at that point that I must be dead, that this is it, I've, I've um, finally moved on. And I had no sense of fear or shock about that. I was really quite happy to be there. And then basically what happened then at that point, I, I felt a presence um, near me. And I, and I looked and then just at my feet uh, in this darkness, so I just saw this glowing sort of figure with beautiful sort of white blonde hair, like an androgynous um, figure, androgynous being, you know, of light uh, with this luminous skin. This first entity would change David's life. That first person is probably the most important uh, person that was that was greeting me. I know now that it was ultimately that was my spirit guide and uh, and my spirit guide and. Um, 
and we've all got spirit guides we can call upon them and that's something that I do it was like an androgynous being it's, it's almost like um, you are my ultimate soulmate and guide you know telepathy was telling me that I'd known from a past life in a near-death experience communication is most often not done verbally David was caught off guard by his guide's clothing. That guide was wearing like a contemporary black t-shirt, you know, uh, something that you and I would wear. It wasn't like some kind of Star Trek sort of outfit or whatever, you know, it was very contemporary. And th there was no movement. This, this guide was just stood over me, just looking over me and guarding me. <laughs> and it's interesting because, as I said to you before, Right up until that point, you know, I was feeling guilty and guilt was my middle name, as I called it. But I didn't feel any sense of that anymore. All that gone. I just remember thinking, oh, well, I'll see my family later. You know, they'll, they'll deal with what's happening and I'll see them when they come through to the other side. I, I felt like I'd known that person all of my life. There was a familiarity about the, that person's face as well. And I yeah. thought, who are you? I know you, don't I? I, I know you. But who are you, you know? As common as looking down at your body during a near-death experience is seeing a tunnel of light. If you walk into the light, you've decided to leave the world behind you. I laid my head back on the slate rock and the, and as I did, I looked up and I could see like grids of white light were just kind of uh, coming into me. And, and, and as I looked at those three grid, grids of light, I just couldn't take my gaze away from them because it was like a pure white light that was almost like healing me. It's the kind of white light that you wouldn't be able to look at normally, you know, if it was like, you know, like sunlight or even electric light, you know, it, it was that powerful, but it was this I could, I could look straight at. Um, and then it was at that point I suddenly felt that, that this sensation of, um, of love that was that was coming from this being was was kind of so suddenly getting stronger, more powerful, and I realised that there were two other uh, female forms either side of me. One of them was kind of like a sort of uh, Asian Indian American, and um, then then the the other one was like well, sort of white Caucasian, I guess, you know. And and they were like they had their hands kind of like just hovering over my body. And I could feel this healing power that was coming from their hands. It was almost like every molecule of me was just vibrating with this, this beautiful energy. I thought, well, this is it, you know, this is very, this is the next stage. This is, this is really amazing. A feeling of peace and acceptance of death and mortality is a common feeling during an NDE. It wasn't really like full hands-on. It was just like, just kind of just hands just um, moving over all over my body. And as I say, it felt more like they were healing my soul because my soul had just been through incredible trauma. And, uh, and I suddenly started thinking about my family down in the hospital because I thought, well, yeah, they must be in a complete state of shock at this stage um, and because they already were pretty shaken up and now they, they would be standing over my dead body because I figured I was dead. So I thought well, I'd better look and see see if I can see them. So I kind of leapt over the edge of this kind of big rock to my left, hoping to see them down in the hospital. I didn't see them at all, but what I did see was like this incredible sight. It was like a huge arc of stars, like a waterfall of stars into, uh, into other galaxies and into like infinity. 
was like shooting stars that were dropping down through the middle and I just thought wow look at that and the energy was just it was it was remarkable a waterfall of shooting stars because the fact that it was in in the form of a, of a, a waterfall is, is the best way to describe it, a waterfall of stars standing at the edge of Niagara Falls I guess you know and uh, not that I've stood there but I've seen it At this point, David would meet someone even more incredible than those he's met. It was at that point that I, I suddenly felt there was an, an even more powerful energy seemed to be uh, connecting with me. And so I lifted my head again, and then I could see just above me, beyond the, the other being, was this huge kind of um, tunnel of white light that was coming towards me. Witnessing a tunnel of light is very common in near-death experiences. There were like these flames of oranges and yellows, and it was almost like all the forms of love you've ever experienced in your life all condensed. And I just figured right at that point that this was the source of all creation. This is where, this is God. This is where it all comes from. Try to imagine what that felt like. Being face to face with your God. As David absorbs this life-defining incident, something happens and then i was suddenly thrown i was back at earth i was back in the hospital and i was like laughing and smiling to myself and i was lying on the hospital trolley and i'd gone from all that tranquility and beauty to um the sheer overdrive of noise and 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 lights and the doctor still frantically trying to save me you know after hours of operations David survives, but what do you do once you've had this experience? Everybody's near-death experience is different in terms of time. I mean, the, the one thing that is really fascinating for me was that because I, when I came through, as I say, I didn't know why I'd been sent back and why it had all happened. When I finally got out of hospital, you know, I was recuperating at my sister's house, actually, and uh, I remember they set me up a computer for me in the room, and I, I went straight online trying to find out about it. And that's when I discovered the term near-death experience. And um, and one of the first images I came across was a drawing that had been done uh, by, by a small child who'd had an, an NDE. And I couldn't believe it because um, this started my painting at that point. And, I, and it was like a child's image. It was just like a, a, a stick person lying, which was her, lying out on this, on this table with four legs, with this blue sort of square covering her body. Remember the blue cloth that covered David's body? and the same color of blue, which is like a light blue. And then- That wasn't all. Three figures with stick arms out over her body. Remember the three figures that David met? I remember I called my sister in. I said, I said, Janet, come and look at this. Come and look, you know, and she just, she, she nearly cried. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? And the honesty of, of children, you know, we always say this, don't we? It's like, I remember Picasso said that, you know, he wanted to try and paint like a child because p children paint from the heart. It's, it's completely honest. It was brilliant seeing that, yeah. And that's always stayed with me, that image, you know, and I still got it. The NDE would completely redefine David's reality. Religion and faith wasn't something that, that was a part of my life at all. Especially when I first came around when I was in the hospital, I felt like I was still connected to that, to that, the other side, like with it, like a, like a cord of me was still there, you know. People say to me, oh, you must have been really disappointed and, and angry that, it, that they sent you back or that you were back in the hospital. But I wasn't at all because I was just so charged with all this beautiful energy. I'd been to somewhere beautiful and they sent me back for a reason. I didn't know what it was. I figured I was the only person that had happened to at that point. You know, but I now realize that you know, many other people have had near-death experiences. 
when they've done research into people who've had near-death experiences, everyone says the same thing. David's right about how incredibly similar near-death experiences are. This is real as you and I are talking now. There's an intense consistency. David's near-death experience completely transformed how he sees himself. This is the, the most amazing thing about all this, Jonathan, is, is that you're just given all this confidence that I'd never had before, you know. Everything seemed feasible. So having spoken to David and done some research on him, David is a true renaissance man. He does it all. Hearing all these melodies coming through and then I'd record them and put them all together. So I was hearing instruments coming through to me. Again, I was like channeling instruments through like horns and flutes and stuff. And I just developed the first movement of, of, of this piece of music. And then I got in touch with my friend, the, my new cello friend and said, look, I've got like a movement for, uh, for that I was talking about for that piece of music. Would you be interested in looking at it? She said, okay. So she turned up with um, someone else who was like one of the heads of the orchestra and we met for coffee and they looked at this score and they said, yeah, this looks really good, we'll do it. David's orchestra was a massive success and people were fascinated by the near-death experience that inspired it. David was becoming a celebrity. Would you be okay, they phoned me about a week later, they said, are you okay to talk to the local press just about your piece because we're going to be performing it? Just say a few words. I said, yeah, cool. So that's what I did. And the local press really loved the story because I told them what it was about. I said I'd been, and everyone knew in the town about my accent. It had been all over the news, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so they knew about me. So they went, oh, you're the guy who went under the train. This is great. And then then suddenly the phone didn't stop ringing. And then, so, then it went from that and it went to, to the national press and then the BBC wanted to come and film me. So the concert sold out two weeks in advance. Because David's story was now nationally known, new safety measures were added. One of the positive things to come out of this, you know, that um, after my accident, and I, I didn't even know about it, I saw it on the, on the main BBC News um, a year later, that uh, seven changes, uh, safety changes, and one of them was the actual doors. You'll remember the alligator doors are what kept his jacket from being removed. I mean, you look at automatic doors on, you know, on, on the subway or on, on your trains or whatever, they're always kind of like this kind of rubber as they close. On these trains, it's almost like a crocodile teeth sort of uh, effect uh, because they were made like that to stop the doors from opening as the, as the train was going along. It was a way of holding them together because they thought that was a safe way of holding the doors together. So that's why I couldn't release my coat because it, it was it, it was trapped within this kind of um, zigzag sort of crocodile rubber effect that was going all the way down. They scrapped that all together, but that's why I couldn't get it out, yeah. But the doors weren't the only problem. I just couldn't understand why there wasn't a guard on, on the platform at that point, but I realised afterwards that, that, um, that they'd made staff cuts to the actual station, and so it was all controlled by, um, by video camera. But this is the crazy part, that the, um, there was a woman who was watching it through CCTV. She, could, she watched it all happen, and she was helpless to alert the driver. She watched it all unfold in it, but she couldn't, you know, it was, she was just working on signals and stuff. So, the, and she'd already given the go ahead or whatever for the, for the green signal. But um, all that has changed. You know, that's, it's a much safer setup there now. But the results of the NDE weren't all good. Soon David was showing symptoms of PTSD and they weren't getting better. It wasn't until uh, six months later that I suddenly hit a wall, uh, you know, in my mind. I just, I got post-traumatic stress. 
that didn't hit me until six months on and and i think it's because i was being carried by by the actual energy of, of the whole nde that i thought i was okay but you know i'm, I'm a physical <laughs> You know, the human being, you know, and my mind can only cope with so much. And so it caught up with me. And, and yeah, so then I started having therapy after that. So I, I, I had to deal with the post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had to deal with the fact that at that point I couldn't drive and, and I needed to get back on the train again. So I went through a lot of therapy because I was determined to get back to that station and get on a train. I couldn't even face going anywhere near the station at that point. So David dove headfirst into the therapy process. I did so many different forms. And so, yeah, I, I remember I used to come out. I remember I'd get on the wrong bus and I'd be going completely the wrong way home and stuff. And then I'd suddenly realize, well, where am I? You know, so that I found that really tough. He did it all. We do you know, cognitive therapy and we do. You know, there was all sorts. We tried every single every single form in the book, I guess, you know, but I, I went to see a clinical psychologist and I found that to be really good, actually, because he, he helped me to understand the way that the actual brain works. And it was great to have somebody turn around and say, look, this is how your mind works. This is why you are feeling this. This is why you you felt that. I'm a massive fan of, uh, of therapy. Since then, more and more researchers are studying near-death experiences. In fact, the hospital where I was, they were doing research there. Probably the hardest part about a near-death experience is having to defend your credibility when you share your story with others. Nobody wants to be laughed at. You know, obviously I've had journalists question me on it. You know, I remember I was on a, on a drive-time radio show. Uh, here and uh, you know the DJ came on or whatever you know the guy who was doing the show the radio presenter I should say and and uh, he interviewed me and I talked through the story in, in a nutshell and, and he just turned around and he said look we've got to go to the news break now but I want you I want to carry on after this this is this is great you know so and he talked to me off air and he said look he said I'm, this is this is brilliant I want you to keep going I said I will do so I carried on talking about it and it, after I'd come off there, he was turning around and I, I could hear him on the radio still talking about it. He said, he said, this is mad. He said, I'm a journalist. I'm supposed to just wade in here and just pull this all this guy all apart. He said, but I couldn't do because it's just so fascinating. And what I'm what I'm realizing is it's, it's nothing to do with me or my delivery or anything like that. It's to do with the fact that at the end of the day, we don't think about death in Western society as a taboo subject. So it's never really talked about. So if somebody like myself and other people who've had NDEs discuss it and discuss death and, and there's no there's nothing to fear, then a lot of people are going, well, yeah, this is great. We should think about this more because <laughs> we don't. Not since medieval times. In medieval times, people thought about death, you know, because, it, because they were surrounded by it. People were dying of the plague and all sorts of things. And so it was talked about. But since then, you know, it's a taboo subject. Beneath all our layers, you know, um, of, of the ego, as we call it, is our inner genuine soul. And that soul is a beautiful soul. And, and if we can only nurture it and learn to love it for what it is and, and not try to make it into something else, then your guides will come through and help you to nurture that soul and bring it into, into fruition. Maybe one of the biggest gifts the NDE gave David was a complete lack of fear around death. I'm not saying we should talk about death, you know, every day over our morning coffee and stuff. It's not that, you know, but we're all going to face it at some point. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come to us all. So I don't know why it's not embraced. It's for me, it's very important to try and tell people that, that we shouldn't fear death, you know, that it's not, it's not the end.
For more about David's story, take a listen to this. The website is called shineonthestory.com. So if you go on there, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see my paintings. There'll be links to my paintings. There'll be links to my music as well. So you can stream the music for free. So you can hear the music that I've just been talking about. And uh, follow me if you want on the Facebook. It's David Ditchfield NDA. You'll see the link for that on there. Also Instagram, I put my paintings up. And yeah, go to uh, shineonthestory.com and it's all there. You've been listening to Highly Unlikely. I'm Jonathan Flannis. Stay tuned.